Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning. Since the pandemic, our BMO experts have been analyzing the road to recovery. We understand it's not a one-size-fits-all. Different parts are proceeding in one direction, some are developing in the other. We're in the sixth month of COVID-19, and we thought it'd be a great time to talk about signs of positive progress, where we're at, and where we're going in the world towards the new normal. Today, we're going to unpack broad questions like, are we on the road to recovery? What does the new normal look like? And can we even answer that question today? The discussion and the perceptions are different where you are by geography or by the businesses that you're in. I'm pleased today to be joined by three experts who've been talking to our clients to help us make sense of the crisis. It's great to be here again with Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD and a frontline healthcare hero. Our own Brian Belsky, our Chief Investment Strategist, and Margaret Karen our head of thick macro strategy at BMO Capital Markets. Uh, welcome to all our panelists and welcome to our viewers uh, to this LinkedIn live event. Why don't I kick off with our current perspective uh, and latest viewpoints and how we feel about the health, the markets and the economy. Uh, what are we watching? What are our bright spots? Uh, Dr. White, why don't I start with you uh, and your perspectives of where we are in the pandemic uh, and in the uh, working towards our solution set. Well, thanks, Dan, for including me. Let's look at where we are in terms of the numbers. You know, in the United States, there's roughly 6.8 million cases as of today. In Canada, there are 140,000 cases. We can take into consideration, you know, that the geography and size difference, but still, there's a lot more cases in the United States than there are in Canada. You know, in terms of number of deaths, there's over 200,000 in the United States versus 9,200 in Canada. You know, that's the number in the, in the macro analysis, but I think it's important to dig a little deeper and look at trends. And one of the areas that we look into is these positivity of cases. You know, in, in Canada, even though there's a slight increase in cases that have been occurring over the last few days, probably a result of you know, recent holidays, perhaps a result of fatigue, positivity is 1.4%. Only 1.4% of tests are positive. That is very good. You know, a couple of weeks ago, it was 1%, but 1.4 is still pretty darn good. Much better than what we're experiencing in the United States, where there's really a variety of positivity throughout the country. You know, I'm looking at trends. So I'm looking to see hospitalization rates are down, you know, in terms of the number of deaths, in terms of the rate are down. The number of cases are, you know, ticking up. So that's a concern. And we really need to think about it in the context of what's going to happen now that we're involved in terms of influenza. So it's important to look at the numbers, but there are some positive signs, especially as we look the positivity of cases, particularly in Canada, keeping that down. That's great. Um, Brian, 
quick snapshot. Where are we in the market and uh, how are you feeling about it? Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, we're feeling actually quite good. I, I think one of the things that how you started this off was talking about the new normal. And, you know, and quite frankly, the way that we're looking at things for the next six to 12 months is as the market and the economy transitions from this chaos uh, to coexisting with the virus, I think it comes back to the new normal. Many of us thought that the new normal was going to be this chaotic environment, quite frankly, that we saw that we were enduring in our private lives and our business lives in February, March. Now, I think we're becoming, <clears throat> excuse me, more, more comfortable with this coexisting with the virus. And it's showing in the stock market. It's showing in the economies in both Canada and the United States. Our great economics team is looking for a tremendous snapback in, in GDP uh, for the third quarter in Canada. Not even a strong, I mean, much stronger to the relative to the U.S., and, and I think that's being lost in kind of what people are looking at, Dan. I think people are continuing to be led by fear and rhetoric and have missed this uh, move to new highs in the U.S. And quite frankly, Canada is not too far behind. So in terms of where we're at, we think we're on track with respect to having the best investment vehicle in the world is right underneath us here in Canada and the United States, not only in terms of what we're seeing in stocks, but also fixed income as well. That's great. Well, that's a great lead into you, Margaret. How are you feeling about things where we're at uh, from your point around stimulus risk perspectives and uh, what you're seeing in the market? Thank you, Dan. We agree with Brian that the economic outlook is much is, is looking much stronger than it had been a few months ago. Uh, we've had a really nice improvement in the employment situation just over four months. We're still printing at over plus one million jobs despite some resurgence in the pandemic, uh, depending on different areas. The economic data is rising to the upside, and we're hopeful that once we get a widely administered vaccine, that we could see possibly uh, unleashed uh, demand coming from the consumer. The housing market data has been strong. Uh, overall, the, the Fed and the fiscal stimulus put in by the federal government uh, has been very, very positive. Uh, the Fed, for us, in terms of fixed income, the Fed is going to be on hold for a very long period of time. The front end will be pegged down for, for years, several years to come. That is the new normal for us. Not that dissimilar from the old normal uh, prior to uh, the past couple of years. And we also think that, you know, 10-year, 30-year rates will remain low uh, for a long, for a long time also. But uh, we do look for a little bit of a backup in uh, rates and a steepening of the yield curve in coming months. Well, I think it's a very interesting interplay that we talk about where we are in the health data, where the markets are, uh, what we see in the news, and they don't feel very connected uh, these days. In fact, they feel quite different uh, in the marketplace. Maybe well, let's go down the, the discussion around treatments, vaccines. Dr. White, what are you watching? How are you feeling about that? You know, what would we do in terms of setting some expectations for our audience uh, in thinking about uh, probably game changers as we think uh, forward? You know, Dan, I've circled October 22nd on my calendar. That's the day that the FDA okay. has called an advisory panel on immunization. So remember, Operation Warp Speed in the United States, there are three uh, vaccine candidates that the U.S. government has entered a manufacturing agreement. 
It's Moderna, it's AstraZeneca, and it's Pfizer. And you know, each of them are in phase three, 30,000 enrollees. We'll see where they are. October 22nd is an important date. We're going to be able to look at data. And, and that's what I want to see. You know, I don't want to read press releases, abstracts. I want to be able to look at data in a transparent fashion. You know, what I suspect is a timeline. Other people have talked about this, depending upon where the data are. There could be an emergency use authorization, which is not a full approval, but allows the drug to be given, you know, to certain populations. And keep in mind, drug is actually being manufactured now under an agreement in, in small quantity to be ready if there is an emergency use. And that's an encouraging sign. The reality will be, whether it's in the United States or Canada, anywhere in North America, we're going to first, you know, identify people at greatest risk, the elderly, comorbid conditions, and first responders in terms of doctors, other health professionals, and fire police. But the other good news, uh, Dan, if you think about in terms of treatment, you know, we had nothing in January. And think of where we are now in terms of dexamethasone, desivir, talking about monoclonal antibodies right now. Not as easy to manufacture, but we have options. I'm very encouraged by that. And then we're currently talking about, you know, having much more rapid testing. Um, and, and that's been a challenge because sometimes you have to trade off speed um, and accuracy, you know, which one is more important. But I think if we're able in the United States to do more testing and quicker testing as Canada has done, that'll also be progress. So lots of encouraging signs on the treatment side, as well as vaccine development. But let's be realistic. We're not going to have widespread distribution of any vaccine this year or probably first quarter. As many others have said, it's going to take a little longer. And that's where we need that consistency of messaging. And we can do that by looking at the data. So October 22nd, an important day. <laughs> and October 22nd, we'll actually have data on all three vaccines, Dr. White, or is it really... Well, you know, they uh, haven't said, so they've called, they've called the panel together. So we're <laughs> going to see you know, what, what's available, what they have. I think we'll have as much data as one can possibly have. You know, in some ways, the manufacturer is in a good position because there has been a lot of infection transmission in the United States. So they've been able to have, you know, candidates exposed to virus. So we'll have to see. I don't think they're going to give a lot more information out the 20 seconds. Okay, well, I've now put something in my calendar. Um, one of the questions I had for you uh, really around the treatment is how much they've changed from when we started back in January to today. Uh, and there's been a massive amount of evolution in how how do we treat, how is it different? Uh, so I think about the efficacy of treatment has gone up materially. Uh, you know, we talked early on about needing too many ventilators and, you know, anecdotally it doesn't appear they put many people on ventilators today. Can you just walk us through a little bit around that evolution of treatment and you think we're at the learning curve or is there a lot more learning to do? Yeah. You know, absolutely. You know, it was co it's called the novel coronavirus because there's a lot that we don't know about it. It's new. And in many ways, we might have gotten the pathophysiology not exactly right. You know, without giving it an immunology, we kind of treated it as acute respiratory distress syndrome. And it probably had some components of high altitude sickness in the way that it impacted the lung. So we might have put too many people on ventilators early on at not the right settings. Um, but what we did realize is, and this is an important point, 
we insisted on controlled trial. So let's not just throw a medicine uh, at a patient because you know they're, they're not doing well, but let's do those controlled trials on remdesivir. Let's do those controlled trials on dexamethasone. You know, those medicines that are already out that are approved for other indications, let's look at them at controlled trials. And let's also move from just those that are the most sick. That's typically what we you know looked at early on. And now we're looking at, you know, how do we get people out of the hospital sooner? So we really have evolved in our understanding of the disease, and that has helped us find multiple candidates for treatment. That's the real success story when you think about innovation. We had nothing in January, and now we have multiple options. And the reality is it's probably going to be a condition like HIV in the sense that we need to have multiple drug therapies to combat this illness. Yeah, I heard a very interesting uh, reminder the other day that we actually don't have a vaccine for AIDS. Uh, what we have is a very effective treatment system. The death rate now, it's no longer terminal. Uh, and that is the evolution of uh, how they've treated that uh, virus over the years. Um, Ryan, let's switch back to you. So, uh, we've obviously got October 22nd in our calendar. Uh, we've got impending news. The market is very focused on each press release. And I understand why Dr. Waite doesn't want to read them all. Uh, and the progress. How much is the market baking in a new vaccine and a cure? And is that part of where we are in our heights? Or do you think there's other things driving us? It's a great question, Dan. And I think it's part and parcel of, of what a momentum market is as we continue to act and react to every little data point, every little press release, everything that's said on TV or everything kind of thrown at you from from clients, and, and I just think that the market in general remains way too reactive to any kind of data point, whether or not it's something on a vaccine or the election uh, or something that comes across with respect to China or anything. And, and I think we've lost kind of our longer term perspective, but you know, to answer your question completely with respect to the vaccine, it just really is a personal thing. We're, we're personalizing whether or not we're gonna go back to work uh, without, with or without a vaccine. And I think it's different for every person. And I think that really speaks to how you should be investing right now, by the way. You know, the stock market is a market of stocks. You can't, it's very difficult to make a broader uh, stock market call, I think, even though that's our job and we make our forecast and everything. That's why we really think that the, the more bottoms up and the more fundamental you are, I think it's going to really benefit. But I, I don't think the market uh, can, will, and should only go up because of a vaccine, Dan. I think it's going to go up because of the fundamental conditions of both the market in the United States and Canada where valuations are where cash is, and where managements are, have made tremendous decisions on how they're managing their cash and how they're operating their businesses. And I think that kind of gets lost in the headlines of this market be only being a market driven by liquidity or Fed stimulus or stimulus from, from the federal governments. Uh, stocks are going up and bonds are going up because these companies are in very good working order, period. And that's what we have to believe as a fundamental investor. Well, that's a great segue to you, Margaret. Uh, world's plus of liquidity. Rates are challenging for a lot of our, uh, our clients in terms of what do they invest in. Uh, how are you thinking about the impact of markets such as the vaccine or further health developments? And uh, what advice are you giving our clients around that? Sure, thanks, Dan. For us, really, the backbone of the economy is the employment situation and anything that helps improve employment either in the near term or the long term is positive for the economy. And that could be in the form of 
the next fiscal stimulus program. It's one of the reasons we think the market's reacting the way it is currently, uh, just the lack of progress on a program. And now, of course, with the shift uh, in the shift changing over to the replacement um, for justice, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg really takes uh, some time away from the fiscal stimulus uh, that they had been working on and reduces the chances that they're going to get it through. Uh, and so for us, that bridge had been very, very important in terms of payroll protection, in terms of keeping the consumer uh, afloat during the first uh, leg of the pandemic. I think as the pandemic timeframe has extended, the risk to the economy extends, and that's where it really becomes critical with regard to the fiscal response and the monetary response. Obviously, on the monetary side, we've seen the Fed come out very, very strong. The first wave of monetary response was to stabilize the financial markets. The current wave that we're in is to support the economic growth. They've been very clear about allowing the employment uh, situation to run hot. And the way we're thinking about that is that a rising tide takes all boats. And they really want employment across different sectors of the economy to improve and they'll let it run hot in, in some sectors in order to achieve that. So we're, for us, it really is about the next leg of fiscal stimulus to bridge uh, both the consumer and companies over this extended pandemic period, which we really hadn't anticipated, I think, back in February and March. Yeah, well, that's probably a great uh, transition to one of the questions that we got, uh, which is really around fatigue. And you could call it COVID fatigue. You could call it working at home fatigue, uh, whether we've got it in, uh, in our various market fatigues. Um, Dr. White, perhaps you could give us uh, a few of your observations and strategies around dealing with uh, this fatigue uh, that I call it. And I think it's uh, a lot of emotional, a lot of mental challenges. Uh, we're seeing lots of stress in our employees again. Uh, we seem to have gone through the crisis phase with lots of energy and adrenaline. Uh, we've kind of come through the summer uh, where people learn to cope differently. And now we're seeing a lot of, uh, of challenges, uh, whether we have young children at home back at school, whether we have that. And so maybe some observations from you on, you know, dealing with those types of issues and how we could uh, focus on uh, perhaps some of the positives uh, versus all the challenges. Yeah, we're definitely having a mental health pandemic as well as infectious disease pandemic. And we see on WebMD each time that there is some change, either a reopening, or discussions around school, anxiety search on WebMD, including medicines, goes way up. Seven times, uh, you know, this month than it was, you know, a year ago. And really what I've been trying to tell people about is how do we stay sane while we stay safe? And, and part of it is, you know, we have to acknowledge what we're feeling. And it's okay to feel this way. There's a lot of uncertainty. And you know, everyone isn't able to, to deal with that as well as they may like. So it's acknowledging one's feelings. It's asking for help from loved ones or health professionals when you're getting to a point that it's hard to function. And the other aspect really is we need to focus more on self-care. We're all on Zoom calls a lot during the day. We, we need to get up. We need to try to be physically active. I saw the other day I only had 2,000 steps. Uh, Brian probably does much more, but that is very low. <laughs> like I need to make an effort, uh, you know, to, to be healthy. I need to, to eat healthier. And 
you know, I think sometimes people are like, well, they're at home, they can check off their to-do list and do home improvement. What I would say, now's not the time to be doing those things. Now's the time to focus on your own health, your own mental wellness, and to start, you know, focusing on, you know, the amount of sleep that you're getting. Have those limits in terms of how work and personal life are all blending together and take a break from social media uh, and the news. It doesn't change that often that you need to be checking, you know, every hour. I think the uh, not checking the news is good advice. Uh, I know my wife has turned off all of her information sources uh, and is going to something where she's reading positive news as opposed to just negative for all these. So, Brian, market fatigue. We have it? Not have it? Where are we at? Uh, well, again, uh, I think we're hitting fatigue in terms of the news cycle and, and the emotion part of it. And, you know, that's why we've been telling people there's kind of three things you should do. Number one, don't base your, don't base your investment decisions on politics. Number two, stop trying to make the growth versus value trade. Number three, uh, the more academic that you're going to be, I think they continue, you're going to continue down to perform. Instead, we have to understand that we're in a stock picker's market. And the one thing that you should remember overall is that when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. And so the key part of that, Dan, is that it's not just about tech stocks. Yeah, sure, there's secular, structural, category killer type names in tech, whether or not it's Apple or Shopify or Amazon or Google or PayPal or all these names. But guess what? There's growth. There's great growth names in traditional value stocks like big money center banks or Canadian uh, banks that have great divisions like capital markets or, or um, wealth management that are doing very well. That's stock picking. OK. And then on the third side of things, income growth, which is exceedingly important for all of our investors. And we believe that equity income growth is going to be an excessively important strategy over the next five to 10 years, how many people are making five to 10 year calls anymore? I mean, we have a 20 year bull market call, but I think from a, from an equity perspective and an income perspective with, with Margaret's universe being much different now at such low rates of income, equity income, I think is going to be a very, very important tool going forward. Um, Brian, maybe just as uh, one of the big market trends in the last uh, three, four months has been the rise of the retail investor and their influence on the marketplace. I'll just comment on that briefly, and, uh, and Margaret, I'll, I'll uh, get some comments from you as well on that. Yeah, I, I think you know, just do just doing the math. If you do the math, uh, which is kind of our job, it, uh, the the effect that the retail investor with all of these headlines, whether or not it's Robinhood or David Portnoy and all this stuff, de minimis, Dan, de minimis in terms of how they're moving the market. If you take a look at the contribution to performance of where these stocks are really pushing the market, it's not the names that the supposed retail investors flooding into. It's really interesting as the market has been a little bit more volatile the last two or three weeks, not really hearing about the retail investor anymore. I think there's a correlation to that. Not only that the markets have gone down, number one, but number two is that sports have started. The NFL is going in, in the United States. So there's more things to do versus doing these, you know, these day trades and things like that. So I think the media, again, has made way too much of this in terms of, of the, the retail investor and especially some of these platforms uh, that are getting a lot of the, of the hype right now. So Margaret, back to you on, on fatigue. How's your markets and your clients feel about fatigue? Uh, you know, it's very hard to get a great investment strategy when someone says interest rates are low forever. 
Uh, and so how do your clients react to that? Are they feeling fatigued? Are they energized about new opportunities? Or uh, what's their psychology feel like around the marketplace today? Yeah, sure, Dan. I think you know one of the biggest things that's occurred in our income markets is the amount of corporate debt that's been issued year to date. And typically, activity brings levels, brings interest. And we've seen a great amount of interest in the corporate bond market after you know the Fed came in to support the market. Uh, bid ask spreads narrowed dramatically. Liquidity improved dramatically. And given that Treasury yields are so low, and corporate bonds still offered a decent spread, we did see quite a bit of involvement. So, in terms of fatigue, you know, despite the fact that you know we're, we're, we're Despite the fact that we're going through this pandemic period, our markets were extraordinarily busy, and the corporate debt investment grade index retraced 88% of the spread widening, and we've widened out a little bit over the past couple of days with the you know, just the risk um, off type of sentiment. We do think there are some risks pending over the next couple of months, but again, with rates where they are. Any type of widening uh, should not be that dramatic and might actually be quite short-lived. That's interesting. Uh, Dr. White, back to you. Uh, lots of people talking today about the second wave, the third wave, the fourth wave, uh, whether it's going to be a more uh, seasonal uh, impact uh, like we would see with the flu through the fall, winter months. Uh, more people circulating. How, how are you feeling about that? What advice would you give to the listeners around how to yeah. think about the second wave and then also about how you control uh, the emotional set to go with that? Certainly, everyone should get the flu shot, um, unless there's some absolute contraindication as to why you can't. Everyone needs to get the flu shot this year in the United States you know, and in Canada. You know, there's some encouraging data. Um, you know, from Australia and some other countries where the flu wasn't so bad uh, in their winter. So that's an encouraging sign. I think part of it is due to the precautions that we're using for COVID and washing, social distancing, um, you know, mask wearing is actually helping stop spread uh, influenza. So I'm encouraged by that uh, and going to be encouraged that people are going to get the flu shot because the bad news would be if you get both at the same time or you overwhelm the health system at the same time. You don't want to have, you know, a twin demic that some people are referring to. But, you know, I, I'm not an alarmist. So I, I, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, the, the sky is falling. I, I'm saying, let's look at the data. Let's not have a one size fits all approach in, in terms of let's address the issue in the community. You know, it all boils down to you know, the, the local rates. So, you know, people will say, well, we need to do this for the schools or we need to do this in the business. That's a reflection of what's happening with COVID in the community. So I think as we continue uh, to get better control of the virus through quicker testing, more testing as Canada has done, you know, reinforce these issues of the effective public health strategies it's something that we need to be cautious about in terms of a second wave or one continued wave in, in some areas of the world. Um, but let's not be overwhelmed by anxiety and control what we can control. And that's what I think will ultimately help stop the spread of the virus. 
100% agree. Uh, we're getting close to uh, the time. I thought I'd close with uh, one question to all of you, uh, and we'll go backwards in our order. Margaret, you'll be up first, which is, as we reflect back on the last seven months uh, of COVID, uh, what are some of the big things that you've learned, your key takeaways, some of your inspiration stories that you have? Margaret, we'll go sure. first. Uh, you know, for us, some of the big things that we've learned is that it is time to address you know, some of the differentials in employment. Uh, the government can't do this. We've got uh, quite a bit of inequity. Uh, we think that the Fed move toward uh, letting employment run high is a positive step in that front. Uh, so that's a big lesson. Obviously, the ability to work from home. We are a fixed income strategy group, and we've been quite successful at doing that. Uh, that said, uh, my team is going back in uh, a few days a week for for reasons of uh, just really being able to discuss the issues in, in person. Uh, so we're looking forward to hopefully successfully doing that. Um, we've learned that we can communicate with clients very effectively uh, through the IB chats and all the different technology uh, that we no longer necessarily have to get on a plane and travel uh, thousands of miles to uh, connect. We've had very successful Zoom calls uh, with we're you know just delighted to see people that we hadn't seen in, in quite some time, and uh, I think that's been a huge difference uh, for us. Where typically we would go and see the clients in the office or present at conferences in person and go out for lunches and dinners, uh, but we've really been able to connect uh, during this pandemic period with uh, with one another and our clients, and I think that's one of the biggest things we've also learned. That's great. That's a great summary. Brian, how about you? Your big takeaways and learnings from, from COVID? I guess one of the one things that I learned the most is that I actually miss being on an airplane. I never thought I'd say this, but for the majority of the last 25 years, uh, I've been on three or four airplanes a week. And you talked earlier about having routines and things like that. When you do that, you have such a routine. Now the routine is you get out of bed, you go to the second bedroom, you, you log into your computer, and you go and and I think the the fear that I have uh, that has transpired over the last six or seven months is that our business in financial services and in the investment world is so driven by relationships and and the relationships I when I see someone smile and they get excited when you're on a Zoom call or if you actually go meet a client and have a drink people are excited to see each other again it's that relationship part of it and I fear for the next generation coming up that really uh, are more instant messaging or typing or doing whatever, I think they need to get back in the office to some degree and have that relationship and that fellowship uh, to be able to jump, uh, head into somebody having coffee or something like that. I think it's a key, key component. But I do think that the fatigue factor is important to understand. I think that we, we've been trying to be even more vocal in our, in our publishing and clients like it, Dan. Clients like that, that the relationship part of it, they like that we're in front of them. And we're blessed to be at a place like BMO that affords us an opportunity to get out and talk to as many clients as possible. So that's, I think, the relationship part of it and, and really has been the key focus the last seven months or so. That's great. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Dr. White, bring us home. What are your big takeaways and learnings from, uh, from COVID? You know, I think we're seeing that important relationship between public health and business, and that we need to invest more in public health and public health strategies that are going to have an impact in other, other aspects of the economy. But, you know, Dan, I'm also very impressed by the innovation that we've seen over the past few months. And everyone wants to know, well, what is healthcare, you know, being a physician going to look like 
you know, post-COVID. And in many ways, we've had an acceleration of several technologies, which is exciting. So we're truly becoming patient-centric. We said that all the time for years, but now through telehealth, we're actually bringing care to the patient. Of course, it's not going to address anything, and it's more than telehealth. It's trackers, it's sensors, it's robotics, it's we're talking about delivering cancer care in the home. That's, in, you know, in many ways, a, a very positive development that COVID has allowed us to accelerate in terms of adoption. So that's one of the things that I'm struck by, you know, even with all these, you know, unfortunate, you know, very sad cases of, you know, death around the world, we're actually having tremendous innovation on, on the healthcare side. And we ultimately may turn out to be a better healthcare system that's much more focused on the patient and that is much more invested in population health. That's a, that's a great wrap. Um, so let me say thank you to uh, each of you, Dr. White, Brian Belsky, Mark Cairns, for joining us today. Uh, very important topic, which is the road to recovery. Uh, I think back to some of the other uh, events that we've held together, and you think about that subtle change in tone uh, from the early crisis to the middle to where we are now, and it's very appropriate we're talking about the road to recovery. Uh, I, like you all, uh, miss people. I like to spend time with people. I'm actually out seeing clients. Uh, I agree very much with Dr. White. Uh, COVID has been a rapid accelerator of change uh, in the way we work, in the way we think about our clients, in the way clients are behaving, uh, how our society thinks, innovation in medicine, innovation in treatment. Uh, all those things were trends that were on the way. And I tend to think of them accelerating by two to three years into three to four months. And uh, I think those are all positive outcomes like you. I regret the, the personal impact uh, in particular the pandemic's had on many of our employees, many of those in our society, uh, the inequality that has been pushed forward uh, and uh, put on display. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's shoots of optimism that we can all look to. Uh, maybe call that a balanced outcome. And so great to have you all again. Thank you to our audience. Thanks a lot and uh, have a great day. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. 
BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.